Good morning, church. Um, apparently, we're not just here to worship together today, but we are here to keep each other warm. So don't be shy. Snuggle on in with your neighbor. I am so cold, so if I stutter, I'm so sorry. Um, today, I will be reading Luke 4, 16 to 21. If you need a Bible today, our Frontlines team is walking around with them. Please put up your hand, and they will come by and give you one. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you can take this Bible as a gift to you. We'd love for you to have one. Okay, so again, we'll be reading Luke 4, 16 to 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been filled in your, fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are into week two of our justice series. If you're a student and you're coming back, or if you're just kind of getting back into the new winter routine, I'd highly encourage you to check out the teaching from last Sunday, because each of these teachings in this justice series are building on the last. And last week, I defined for us what justice is, what being a just individual uh, actually is. And then over the next few weeks, today included, we're going to be looking at actually a biblical worldview of how we actually do justice in the world. So that's where we're going today. And so I hope you're excited for that. Before we jump in, though, let's take a moment to pause, to consider where we are at personally, where you might be. Uh, part of that is actually deciphering how you're feeling this morning. And so figure out where you're at, how you're feeling. Maybe you're feeling broken. Maybe you're feeling happy. Maybe you're feeling sad. Wherever it is, invite Jesus into where you are, and then we'll keep going. And so, Jesus, we do thank you that we don't have to go about this work of justice alone, but that you go with us, you've gone before us, and we thank you that you also meet us this morning. You meet us exactly where we are, and we thank you for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to ask you, just starting question to get you thinking, when was the first, or what was your first memory of injustice? What is your first memory of witnessing or experiencing injustice? Maybe for you, it was witnessing or experiencing um, a bullying situation on the playground early on, right? That is an unjust thing happening. Maybe for you, you're raised in a home in which uh, very traumatically you experienced injustice at the hands of your parents, siblings. Maybe think about personal experiences of injustice. Now I want you to think about maybe a global uh, aspect of economic injustice. Uh, for me, and this might show one, yes, yet again, sort of where I fall in the age category, but I've got a couple of pictures here. 
um, on the screen. And some of you might remember these, in, this individual. This is Paul Brandt, uh, country music singer. I'm not a big country music person, but does anyone recall Paul Brandt on an infomercial for World Vision on television? Anyone remember? Yeah, so there was, uh, during the mornings, I would watch television, watch cartoons, and then after cartoons would come on these fairly lengthy infomercials in Paul Brandt uh, for World Vision. And so I immediately saw in these infomercials, like, uh, lots of injustice, typically children in poverty. And then at the end of the infomercial was Paul Brandt walking through a call center saying, you know, call right now and, and give money to what is going on. It's very very deeply uh, impactful for me. But then there was also World Wildlife Foundation, who also had an infomercial uh, in which they would show scenes and shots from when animals were uh, not treated very nicely and for pandas and things like that. And so these things, as I was beginning to think about the first times in my life where I had memories of injustice, this was what I found. And again, in the World Wildlife Foundation, there was a call at the end of it to say, you know, send in or give us a call and start setting up monthly donations uh, to meet the needs of injustice in our world. And some of you maybe can recall certain situations like this, at least on an economic and a global perspective. And the question that I'm left with, and maybe it was a question for you as you experience this thing, is the, the message seems to be that the best way for me to fight injustice in the world is to give money. Right? That the best way that I can engage in justice in the world, at least in an economic global perspective, is to send money. And then that maybe has been uh, exacerbated in your life as you think about the needs that arise in our city around justice. And is the best thing for those who are economically rich, is the best way to do the needs of justice or to do justice in our world for the economically rich to give money to the economically poor. And in many ways, this is how many of us think about justice. But I believe, and this is what's going to be my hypothesis today, that actually there's a, perspect there's a perspective in the scriptures that says, no, we look beyond just simply economic value and worth in an individual. We look at the entirety of an individual, and the scriptures present for us, in my perspective, a holistic way of actually doing justice that goes beyond the needs of simply the economic and goes into the areas of spiritual life and all these other things. Now, as I say that, you might be, again, we talked last week about a few different types of people that might be in the room. And there's the, the justice avoiders who might be those that said, you know what, I haven't done justice because we've got to prioritize the spiritual aspect of somebody's life. And people who've gone down the justice category have given away to doctrine and good faith. So, you know, you just don't do justice. It says the best way that we can do justice in the world is preaching the gospel. Maybe that's for some in this room. Others of us, though, uh, were the doctrine avoiders that have said, no, doctrine and preaching the gospel has gotten in the way of doing justice, so just go and meet people's needs and don't preach the gospel at all. And then there's those who say, no, religion poisons everything, get rid of religion, and just go and give your money and do some good things. Once again, the scriptures confront us and say that there is a better way of doing justice, of being a just individual that looks at the entirety of an individual and challenges our perspectives. And so what I want to do in order to do that is actually look at a big swath of the scriptures from both Genesis to Revelation to show how God is actually historically in the past, in the present, and in the future is fighting and doing justice in our world. But to do that, let's start at creation. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to creation. You can find that in Genesis 1, verse 26 to 31. It is so critical related to any discussion of justice or how things ought to be to go back to the beginning and see how God created things to be in a just society 
money and in a just world. And here in Genesis 1 and 2, a very brief section of the scriptures, we have what God's desire is for us and for a just world and society and the purpose of creation in the very beginning. So Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now this is, this is ground zero for God's desire for his creation, for his intent about creation. And you see here that there's really no need at this point to actually do justice because things are just. And when God creates things, he creates us and the world around us for, with, with the primary desire of four different relationships. And I have a slide here, and this is taken from When Helping Hurts, uh, which is a fantastic book and a fantastic resource if you're serious about doing justice in this world. And in God's economy, and God's desire, he says, here is an individual. And what I want this individual to do in order to live in a healthy way with this world is this individual needs to live in a healthy relationship with me, primarily. Secondarily, this person is, and humanity needs to live in healthy relationship with themselves, to have an understanding of themselves. You know, so many of us are asking the question nowadays, who am I? In, in creation, God tells us who we are. We are God's children made in his image. That's where our identity comes from. He then creates us to have healthy relationships with other people. Genesis 2 verse 25, Adam and Eve are both naked and they feel no shame. That's a different experience than many of us have. And then also with creation, God creates for us creation. And he says, partner with me in taking the world somewhere. Subdue, rule, partner. But then he says also in having dominion is to take the raw materials of the planet and make something beautiful. Take creation and go, may your perspective and may your approach be to your creation to actually bring about human flourishing. He says, I want the planet to flourish, and I want you to partner with me in taking the planet in a human flourishing way. So there's four aspects of justice according to Genesis 1 and 2 in the way that God creates us in healthy relationship. Relationship with himself, relationship with ourselves, relationship with others, and then our relationship with creation. Now, as many of you are aware, uh, this isn't the way things currently are. Right? Things are broken. Relationship with God is broken. The way that we relate to ourselves, many of us experience that brokenness. The relationship that we have with other people is broken. And the relationship that we have with creation has also been broken, which leads to our next slide of what this actually looks like according to uh, Corbett and Fickert in their book, When Helping Hurts. 
which leads to something called poverty. Now, when many of us think about poverty, we think about poverty solely from the aspect of material poverty. In this resource, they broaden that to say, actually, all of us experience a great degree of what we mean by poverty. And that now each of those four relationships has been broken. And so we all live with a lack. We all live with an aspect of our relationship with God that is at a brokenness. We are now in poverty of our spiritual intimacy. With ourselves, we live in a poverty of being. With others, we live in a poverty of community. And then with creation, we live in a poverty of stewardship, a loss of sense of purpose, laziness, materialism, and the ground that we work with is cursed. And so all of these things are working in many ways in this broken system and society in which we have in much brokenness. And as you can see, there's the political systems that are involved, the economic systems, and the social systems. Now, some of us are looking at this and we're like, How do, where do we even start then? Like, if this is what's been affected, where do we even start? Well, let's start first by redefining poverty, and I'll explain why this is really important. This is again from, this is Bryant Myers, quoted by Stephen and Brian in their book. Poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all of its meaning. Poverty is the absence of shalom or peace in all of its meaning. And this definition is far more comprehensive than just material poverty. Because here's what this means. All of us live with a sense of poverty. All of us live with a sense of poverty. Now here's how this, here's how the, where the rubber meets the road with that. What we oftentimes think, and as I go back to the Paul Brandt and World Wildlife Foundation, if we simply think about poverty as material poverty, then what the whole approach should be is that someone who's economically rich would meet the needs of somebody who's economically poor, and therefore poverty is solved. And so it's a bit of like a top-down approach of I have, you don't, and so I give to you. Now, here's a bit of the interesting dichotomy. If you've ever been on a missions trip before, this is something that you'll hear pretty repeatedly. People will go on a missions trip and they'll come back. I used to lead youth teams on missions trips. And one of the things that people would oftentimes say when they came back was, you know, people there, they had nothing, but they were so happy. They had nothing, but they were so happy. Look at us. We have everything that we need, yet we're not happy, which exposes a poverty of being, right? You and I live with a poverty of being, of who who am I? What is my purpose in this world? Why am I not experiencing happiness? We have all of the options in the world, yet we experience this deep relational poverty with ourselves and primarily in our culture with God. And so as a result, here's here's again how the rubber meets the road. When you are doing justice, when you are approaching the world from a level of poverty, you got to see that all of us are on the same playing field. It's not one person above the other. And many of our approaches to doing justice exacerbates the God complex of the economically rich and drives those who are struggling with material poverty deeper into their poverty of being. That I I can't meet my own needs or I need other people to come and do it for me. 
And what we need to do is approach, as we think about justice, recognize that all of us are equal. All of us live with need. All of us live in poverty. And this is the approach of the scriptures. This is the approach of God actually doing justice in the world because he sees poverty in this grand perspective and he says, I've got to work in this way. So how does God do justice? God does justice through reconciling and repairing all four aspects of our poverty. Relationship with himself, within ourselves, with others, and with creation. And if we want to take doing justice seriously, we need to broaden our perspective on how we do that. Now, how does God do that in the scriptures? Well, let's first look at the Old Testament. Now, many people will say that the God of the Old Testament is angry, uh, unjust, and, you know, not very tolerable. They don't want to deal with the God of the Old Testament. But here's what people so often miss is that the God of the Old Testament is actually engaged with his people when after at rebellion, he could have said, I'm out of here. He engages with his people and he calls a guy by the name of Abraham and he says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then in Abraham's family, he gives the people who become the Israelites a law. And within the law, this is the way that God is going to live in relationship with his people. He prioritizes the poor. He prioritizes the orphan. He prioritizes the widow. He prioritizes the foreigner. And he says to his people, and he gives them laws that will make them prioritize these individuals as well. But to get very specific, let's look at some of the laws that God gives that looks at the areas of relationship with himself, relationship within self, relationship with others, and then relationship with creation. Now, as it relates to relationship with himself, God gives the Israelites ceremonial laws. He gives them purification laws because a, a broken, sinful people cannot be in the presence of a perfect and holy God. And for a time in the Israelite history, animal sacrifice was the primary way in which these people could exist within a relationship with God. So God does prioritize relationship with himself primarily as a main place. Secondly, though, he looks at the relationship that individuals have within themselves, and he gives them laws that prevent any sort of understanding or belief within oneself of self-glorification. Example, he gives them the law of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath law is that one day of every seven, you are to do no work. So if anyone has any sort of complex of workaholism, they are enforced one day a week not to work. Why? Because God is reminding his people to say, you get your value from me. You don't get your value from what you do. You get your value from me. God then gives laws for how people are relate to relate to others. He gives them laws like this one, a tithing law, which is in every third year, the 10th tithe was put in a public storehouse, and then the poor, the refugee, and the orphan would then receive them. So the Israelites were expected on an annual basis to give a tenth of all that they made to the priests. But on the third year, all of that tenth was put in a public storehouse and it was given away to the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and to the poor. Can you imagine if our society and our culture did that? That it was just expected that every person that lives in Guelph, that they're going to take a tenth of all that they make and on the third year it's going to be distributed to the most marginalized and vulnerable of our society. Like, God enforced this. It's unbelievable. 
There was, other, um, there was another law that in every 49th year, it was declared a year of jubilee in which debts were forgiven and the land was to go back to its original tribal and family allotments. This is what Craig Blomberg writes about this crazy law. He says, here, if ever, is the ultimate relativization of private property. On average, each person or family has at least a once-in-a-lifetime chance to start afresh, no matter how irresponsibly they had handled their finances or how far into debt they had fallen. Imagine if something like that was enacted in our society. That would certainly prevent people from just gaining more and more and more and more. It would say, no, let's allow opportunity for everyone to thrive, even if they've made mistakes as it relates to the economic system. But then God also gives laws related to creation. And this is a fascinating one. But in the 49th year, connected to the land that was to be redistributed, God also instructs, and this is found in Leviticus 25 verse 11, that 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. What God is asking of his people is that for two years, the 49th and the 50th, that the land is to lie fallow. Now what does that mean? By lying fallow, it would be plowed, but it would not, no seed would be, would be actually spread. Why was God doing this? Well, one... By doing this, you're going to allow the land to become better fertilization. So it's going to help with the fertility of the land, allow the land to grow back and to be able to be produced. But then secondly, he wanted to prevent uh, people from growing more than they actually needed. So think about the way that we oftentimes relate to our planet and what we grow. We're like, no, don't, we got to prevent the land from growing back in its fertility. I mean, in some ways we do do this, but we're like, we got to get as much from it as we can and God was preventing surplus production. Now we say, no, surplus production. Bring it on. The needs of ourselves that we are saying here in the West will do whatever it takes to get continually the more and more and more we want. Do you see how here we actually see God enacting a desire for his people to be just? One, with their relationship with him, the relationship that they have with themselves, the relationship that they have with other people, and then the relationship that they have with their creation. Now, here's the problem. The Israelites failed miserably at actually obeying these laws. Miserably. They didn't take it seriously most of the time. And we read as the story continues that the Israelites end up uh, being sent into exile. And part of the reason, as I expressed last week, was because they didn't take care of the, the widow, the orphaner, the foreigner, and the poor. They didn't, they didn't take God seriously with those things. They didn't properly live out this year of Jubilee. Why? Because the desire of the human heart and our poverty of being is to make a name for ourselves, as we read out in the scriptures. And so God, yet again, you know, what's he going to do? Well, I'll leave them to their own devices. He doesn't. That's how gracious and good this God is. And so enter redemption. Galatians 4, looking back on this redemption pattern, says this. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, because the Israelites couldn't keep the law perfectly to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive his adoption as sons. We know that this messenger is Jesus, right? Yes, Jesus. He is going to be our redemption. And Jesus, in his first sermon, is recorded in Luke 4. It's what Andrea read for us before. Now, if, if imagine in the work of being a pastor, what would you want your first sermon to be, right? My first sermon was not on this text. But here is the first sermon. Jesus standing. He's reading from Isaiah, which is a messianic prophecy of the coming Messiah. And Luke 4, verses 16 to 21 says this. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. You ready? This is the Messiah in the synagogue on that Sabbath day. First sermon. What's he going to say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is like the mic drop moment because we read, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Think about that moment. And what is he saying of himself? Well, Jesus identifies himself in this moment as the Messiah, the one who would come to do what was foretold about in reconciling all things and doing justice. And we see this in Jesus' life, right? So let's think back to the approach of the four things, with God, with self, with others, and with creation. In Matthew 9, this is just one example, verses 2 to 6a, Jesus responds to this paralytic. And he says this, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Which is interesting in context, right? Because, Jesus, why are you forgiving his sins? First. Well, why? Because Jesus sees the whole being, the holistic reality that, Son, your sins need to be forgiven. How about our relationship with ourself? Well, then in Matthew 9, verse 6b to 7, Jesus does heal the paralytic. And he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. This boy stands up and he goes home. This man stands up and goes home. So Jesus is restoring, in a sense, this relationship that this guy is going to have with himself, that he has been healed by this Jesus and hopefully we'll live out of now an identity that I am someone that has been redeemed and restored by this rabbi, by this Jesus. Or how would our relationships with others, what is defined as healthy and good community? Matthew 9, verse 11 to 13. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, that is Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Notice how Jesus is therefore redefining how we live in community with one another, talking about the poverty of relationship with other people that we struggle with. He's redefining what that looks like. Or then, how about Jesus' power that he exerts over creation? Matthew 8, 26b to 27. This is when Jesus is in this boat with the disciples. Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Fascinating, right? So here we see Jesus, God himself, not caring solely about meeting material poverty needs, but focusing first primarily on this person's relationship with God, their relationship with themselves, their relationships with others, and then the relationship they exist within the created order. It's amazing. Now, there's a detail that you might not catch about Jesus' first sermon. And it's that in his quoting of Isaiah 61, he actually leaves a detail out. So to show you what that detail is, uh, you can go with me, if you'd like, to Isaiah 61, verse 2. I'm going to start at the tail end of what Jesus says. But he says this, or this is what Isaiah 61, verse 2 says. So we hear that Jesus said this in the first sermon, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But then there's the next line, and the day of vengeance of our God. So think about that. Jesus in his first sermon gets up and he quotes Isaiah, but he doesn't keep going with what Isaiah said at the end. And the day of vengeance of our God. Now the question is, well, why would Jesus leave that detail out? Right? Some people might say, well, you know, you avoid the message of judgment because you kind of want to woo your audience's ears. Like, don't talk about vengeance. Don't talk about judgment. You're going to scare people off. Now, knowing, some of us will know this, but knowing the ministry of Jesus, did he ever seem to be influenced by the opinions of others on what he said? No, right? Like he said some pretty controversial things, lots of controversial things. So why does Jesus leave out the point about vengeance? This is why Jesus leaves out the the point about vengeance. It's because Jesus came not to bring vengeance, but to bear the vengeance of God. Jesus came not to bring vengeance, but to bear the vengeance of God. Colossians 1, verse 19 to 20 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So through Christ... Redemption and reconciliation in all four areas of our poverty can be restored and will be restored. So Jesus recognizes that I'm going to live this life, this perfect life, on their behalf. But even if they try to emulate and do everything that I have done, it will still not be enough to bridge this gap, to bridge this relationship of their poverty to be back in right relationship with God. And so he comes to bear the vengeance of God on our behalf so we don't have to. Well, what is the end of the story? Revelation. 
tells us in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, this is the restoration, what things will look like in the end. This is the great Christian hope for the future. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Think about that poverty of our relationship with God, that broken spiritual intimacy, gone forever. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What he's saying, in the end, as justice is done, as judgment comes, those who stand in Christ have this new future hope and future reality in which our poverty and spiritual intimacy is completely gone. Our poverty of self and being is completely restored. Our poverty and our relationships with others are completely restored. And the relationship of ourselves with creation is completely restored. Everything is remade and it's beautiful. That's what we have to look forward to. So what this means is that if you're sitting here right now and you, you have come in this morning and you're like, this world is broken. I'm broken. The relationships that I'm in are broken. And you're like, Jesus, come back. This is what we have as our hope. So as you're being oh, come overwhelmed, like you know how I said earlier, we're looking at this slide and we're like, look at all the brokenness that exists. The economic system, the political systems. It is broken out there. We can have hope as followers of Jesus that Jesus will come back and he'll restore and remake and bring justice so that everything is back the way that he had intended it to be in creation. Yeah, that is very good news. But friends, it also means that you and I at this point in our lives live between the redemption and the restoration. Which means that we understand, if we're followers of Jesus, we understand that Jesus has borne and will the vengeance of God for us, that that has happened, but we're awaiting for him to return. And so we're living in this moment that we call the already and not yet, where it's like we begin to see, some of us have experienced that poverty of relationship with God, that we're in relationship with him. But have you ever had one of those days where it's like, God, where are you? I don't feel you right now. So you make that very logical understanding of like, but I know that you're with me because you promised me that you are with me. Right? Or the the poverty of our own being. But how do we live in this world? How do we do this? Well, you and I, therefore, live in this world understanding this already not reality. And we do justice and we alleviate poverty with the four-tiered approach that what we talked about today. That as we think about this, and as we're still called to do justice, we're not supposed to just sit on the sidelines and go, well, you know, it'll all be restored one day, so whatever. I'm good. That the scriptures actually commission us to go forward. Here's what poverty alleviation then is, according to this book, When Helping Hurts. Poverty alleviation is the ministry of reconciliation, moving people closer to glorifying God by living in right relationship with God, with self, with others, and the rest of creation. That's what it is. Here's what 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 19 says. This is beautiful. Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciles, reconciled us to himself. And what gave us the ministry of reconciliation? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't get off the hook. Because he, as, as he has reconciled you to God with self, with others in creation, now says, now go and bring this message of reconciliation to the world. And do justice, looking at all four aspects. So how do we alleviate poverty and do justice? We pursue the reconciliation of individuals with God, with themselves, with others, and creation. Now, I don't know about you, but that's super comprehensive. That's holistic. Right? That we understand as we are working with individuals, ourselves included, that it's far greater than one specific need. Now, it might mean you start with one specific need that is addressed. But it means that as you move towards out of maybe a relief situation and into a development situation, that you look at everything surrounding the individual. But you also identify the areas where you're going to follow the individual short. And don't grow into a God complex of you need me so that you're fixed. But that both of you can identify that both of you need the grace of Jesus to live in right relationship and to pursue health. Now you might say, well, what does this look like practically? So we pursue the reconciliation of individuals with God, themselves, others, and creation. Well, what about with God? Well, it means that any of our doing justice efforts or our poverty alleviation efforts if we're to take the scripture seriously, must involve the proclamation of the good news. That there is a good news to this world. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you also want others to know that because you believe that if someone is going to become whole, they need to grow in their relationship with Jesus. That that must become a part of that. It can't be missed. That their worldview needs to change. The way they relate to God will change the way they relate to themselves, other people, and with the creation that they live in. Secondly, with self, we have to believe the good news personally, right? Once again, if you are believing that you are the person that brings all of the goodness to somebody else, you're forgetting that you are also a recipient of God's grace. So I engage with this person, understanding that I need to believe the good news personally. And then through the good news, we will then see ourselves rightly as we go and we care for people. And we also want the same for them. Or with others. This is, this is the gospel indeed. You know, we talked about the particular attention last week that God shows to the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, and the material or poor. And as we talked about, this can be through relief, rehabilitation, and development. Being wise about how we actually engage with others. Bringing the poverty of community to, to bear that God actually brings meaning in our community. How we relate to each other. You know, this is much of what we do in our missional communities where we invite people into relationship, into community, not just into a crowd, but into deep, meaningful community. We care about that. But then we also care about the reconciliation of individuals and ourselves with creation, returning to our intended purpose at creation of dominion and rule, of partnering with God and taking the world somewhere and subduing the planet and harnessing the raw materials that make up the planet and making something that is beautiful. We work for human flourishing which means that we don't exploit or abuse creation. 
you know, oftentimes, you know, you'll see a lot of folks that are, uh, you know, fighting uh, the climate fight, right? And there's a lot of different reading, and I'm not going to go down that, that, that trail today, because that could lead us in a lot of different ways. But here's what I believe. I believe that we as followers of Jesus should be some of the people that care the most about the planet that God has given us. Because he instructs us in Genesis 1 and 2 to harness it, to subdue it, and have dominion over it. And that's not a dominion that is uh, abusive. That is a dominion that takes the raw materials and makes something beautiful. That allows the land to be fertile and also moves away from surplus production. And you can make personal decisions about how you want to do that. But I believe that as followers of Jesus, we also need to care about the land in which we live and not treat it as our slave. Does that make sense? So friends, earlier I talked about the justice skeptics. Those have said, well, we're only going to care about justice if it solely involves gospel proclamation. I think that what I've presented today is presented in the scriptures is comprehensive enough to challenge that view. It's comprehensive enough to challenge the view of, well, avoid doctrine. No, we need to also care about people's right relationship with God. But then also it looks beyond those who say, well, religion poisons everything because we're saying, no, look at the complexity of this world, of individuals. And we need to look at it comprehensively and holistically, desiring to see people as we do justice grow in their relationship with God who made them, with themselves understanding that they're made in the divine image and so their divine image matters understanding that they can grow in relationship, that there's community through God's church and his people, and that we also approach the way we care for creation in the way that God intended and desired us to be. Now, in closing, this is also a lot, right? And hear me, these messages are not intended to be like everything. They're parts to hopefully spark some greater desire to learn and to grow, and so there's lots of things out there. Maybe as we close today, you can consider for yourself, what is an area that God is calling you this week to care about an individual's relationship with him, themselves, with others around them, and then with creation? How can you pursue that doing of justice where God has placed you right now? Let's pray. We'll sing our song, and you can stand for that. So Jesus, we thank you that you are the great minister of reconciliation, that you reconcile us in our relationship with you, with ourselves, with those around us, and with creation. God, I pray that you would forgive us of any times where we have exacerbated our God complexes and we've diminished the right and values of other people. God, may we see that when we do relationship and when we live in relationship with people that we bring more than what we can bring economically. And so would you change our perspective in the way that we've maybe thought about other people or treated other people based on believing that we are everything that other people need. And Jesus, you are what people need. You are what people need. And so God, we pray that we would do justice in light of this. That the gospel would be preached both in word and in deed. And may we take your call of justice seriously. We pray this in your name. Amen.